right, this is, uh, this is a little, it feels weird to me. I don't know if you guys feel weird, but this feels weird to me. Uh, I've gotten so used to the school and the way we've set up. This is, I, I feel really strange. And so we'll, we're going to deal with it. We're thankful that you're here. It's a Memorial Day weekend, and I know that on Memorial Day weekends, we ex- Labor Day, you know, I, that's why I have a wife because she keeps me straight on those things. It's Labor Day weekend. I think I've been calling it Memorial Day and nobody stopped me at all. I've been calling it that for about a month now. Anyway, um, so, and typically we expect to see, we, you know, we really thought that we were going to be split up in two different services and I'm glad we weren't so that the first time we did get to meet here, most of our people are here. For the ones that aren't, you know, they're just missing out and that's their problem. But today we are closing out. Um, yeah, I... I should pray again, probably. No, it's, we'll be okay. We'll get through it. Um, anyway, so we're going to close out our, our uh, series that we've been in on our distinctive perspectives. And today, the, the topic, you know, these last two weeks have been extremely difficult topics for me to preach because I know that they, they are difficult for people to hear. Today is probably not going to be one that evokes an immediate emotional response in you or a desire to... Uh, to say, hey, man, you're crazy or anything like that. But honestly, today is probably, of all the ones that we've dealt with, it's one of the most hotly debated probably between different church leaders, but I believe it's probably the one we need to understand and depend on the most that we, so that as we strive to do the work that God's called us to do, we recognize that we're not standing on our own to do it. So really what we're talking about today is about spiritual gifting and how how God empowers his people for his work. And so before we before we set up our perspective, there's there's our view and the view that we teach. I just want to set up a couple of different perspectives that I want you to have in your mind. And that's natural and spiritual giftedness. There is teaching throughout the Bible that demonstrates that God te- that He enables us to do natural things and supernatural or spiritual things. And it'd be kind of like this. There's some guys that are naturally enabled. They have the ability to go out and play a sport. Like, well, just pick football. There's guys that are built for it. They've got the strength for it. They've got the stamina. They've got the mind. They've got the ability to, to see a ball coming and catch. And then there's others that are able to see a receiver down the field and throw through all kinds of defenders and make it to the receiver. Some think they can do that and aren't so good, but the reality is is that they try. I mean, the point is is that they have a natural ability to do that. Some guys, they get a little older, their belly starts to hang out a little more, and they can't play anymore. They don't have the physical ability, but they've got an ability to see and perceive the game, and so they begin to coach. And some guys never had an ability to play or even coach and don't even really have the, the insight to really, they're not practitioners of the game, but they own the teams that provide the equipment and the ability or the, the space to play. They have all of these people have physical, natural abilities. Do we just assume that we can be anything we want to be? I mean, there's a teaching that in America that says if you just grab yourself up by your bootstraps, you can be whatever you want to be. And that is a crock. It's a lie. Not every little kid that grows up can be the president of the United States. Don't fool your kids into that. Don't, don't let them believe that. 
I don't think that it's, I don't think that it's harmful to be encouraging and say, do it and strive for whatever you want to strive for, but help them see that, that the, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, but the five foot one little boy that wants desperately to be a defender on the line, he doesn't need to be there. He's going to get hurt. He doesn't have the physical ability. He's not been given that ability. And that's okay because he probably does have some ability that God's given him and enabled him with. The truth is, is whether you're a believer or not, you have some physical, natural abilities. We can't just assume that that we can be all the, the things. I, I, I literally am not going to be a marathon runner. Not only because I'm who I am right now, but because my legs are stubby. It takes me two steps for every step that I watch people that run and do it well. They've got a stride that's, it, my legs are too short. I could probably beat myself into it, but I'm not going to win races. I could go out and just do it. That's okay. We can learn to live with that. So there's natural abilities. But then there's also spiritual abilities. In the physical world, in in our regular everyday life, you know, the the sad thing about spiritual abilities is that there is a lot of whack jobs out there. And they're using these spiritual abilities sometimes just in fraudulent ways. Like, I'm just going to name this one because he's he's so well-known. Benny Hinn, you know, the guy is a, he's a wingnut. He's a whack job. He, he's out there and he is fraudulently leading people to believe he's doing things that he doesn't really have the power to do. And it's shown over and over his prophecies that he claims that they've, they've fallen and they've not come true. And so he's proven himself to be a false prophet. And time and time again, people that say they've been healed by him find themselves still sick. And then it's their fault because they didn't believe enough. If, if you had just believed enough, then you'd have been healed. It's not Benny Hinn's fault. No, it's any hen's fault and then there's those that they're not even looking to toy with god they're playing with evil spirits you see there is a real spiritual realm out there that we don't see we don't talk about in in good you know um conservative circles oftentimes but there is a real spiritual realm that we have to be considered And, and and the truth is that i think god enables his people to live and work in both of these realms in fact i think the scripture teaches it you can, you can look all the way through the pages of Scripture and you can see these different perspectives. When you, when you think of in the Old Testament, there, God told His people when they left Egypt, He said, okay, now that you're out in the desert, I want you to build a tabernacle, a place for you to come and worship Me. And none of the people that, that went into the desert had the abilities to do the things that He wanted them to do. And so what did He do? He gifted them with natural, physical abilities to work metal, to, to work with wood and to work with fabrics. And he, he gave people the ability to put together and build the tabernacle, a place where they would gather and worship. Samuel, in the Old Testament, heard from God in a spiritual way, heard from God, actually heard it in a physical voice, heard his voice and knew you need to anoint David king. David was the last guy that anybody would have picked as king, but Samuel heard it and he, he obeyed. And he anointed David king. But it's not just the Old Testament. The, the teaching is in the New Testament as well. In fact, if you read through the New Testament over and over and over, you're here, you hear God speaking through his word to tell us to serve in his power. In, in fact, in First Peter, we'll read the passage here in just a minute. He teaches people to serve as if they were empowered by God to do it. Not just serve and, and also do spiritual things like speak for God. Almost like the prophets of the Old Testament as they were to hear a message and were to proclaim it. 
And maybe prophecy looks a little differently and different in New Testament times than it did in Old Testament times, but the reality is, is the command is still there. And so just, just to help us gain an understanding of it, I felt like it's important for us to teach on this and help us de- define how we will teach it and how we'll encourage our people to look at it. Because the reality is, is that as, as you sit in this room, you come from one or two camps. You're either a cessationist or a continuationist. There's two, two majority views here. There's two big camps, and everybody else kind of breaks out between them. Cessationists believe that the power of the, 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 the spiritual gifts ceased with the apostolic church. So as the apostles died, the spiritual gifts like healing, speaking in tongues, prophesying, those kind of things, especially the miraculous gifts, that they cease, that they don't exist anymore. And in a big part, a large portion of the church today, that's what, in fact, a large portion of church history has held a cessationist view, as in there is no working of the Holy Spirit. In fact, one of the the major theologians that we build theology from today, he's affected the Western culture of Christianity more than any other theologian, probably, probably is Augustine. He was a cessationist in his view for the very the, the vast majority of his life until just before he died. And so through church history, people have, because of their experience, because they have, have not seen the gifts as much, because they've not experienced it, they believe that they ceased. Or then there's continuationists. And the continuationists, and if you're in this camp or grew up in this, these circles, you, you could have held views as far as like being slain in the spirit, um, which means basically that the Spirit comes on you and, and you're just uncontro- doing uncontrollable things. And, and at least my experience with that is that people are on the ground and um, I'm, not, I'm just not trying to make fun. I'm just saying this is my experience with it, that they're on the ground and they are uh, uttering words that sound they're, they're un- not understandable. And, and so there's, there's this sense of being slain in the Spirit. There's a speaking in tongues, prayer languages, um, uh, healings and all kinds of things. And honestly, for a lot of people that, that come out of these circles, they recognize that the, the difficulties they face is that everything is built in most cases, in many cases, not maybe most, but many cases, they're built off of these human experiences. And, it, and the teaching that comes from scriptures, it, it, it's weaker and it's not, as, it's not as doctrinally sound and they're not pushing as hard to understand the depth of the Bible. In fact, the unfortunate thing about the continuationist view in many cases is that it's, it becomes legalistic, becomes harmful, and it becomes man-centered. Because all of a sudden, if you come into a church and you don't have some emotional uprising or some emotional experience, or if you didn't act in a certain way, you must not be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so you've got these two views, really, that become so man-centered. My experience says they don't happen very often, so they must have ceased. And my experience says that if I didn't have it happen, God must not be with me. He must not be empowered me. That those two views become so man-centered that they become dangerous. I think that we need to strive to teach and hold a different view. In fact, if you were to label us, if, if we were to try and label our perspective on spiritual gifts, I would, I would ask you to consider it this way. I would ask you and encourage you to be, based on the teaching of Scripture, and I'll show it to you today, to be a cautious charismatic. 
Maybe you've heard, Doc, I don't know, most of you probably have heard Mark Driscoll at some point call it, uh, I say that he's a charismatic with a seatbelt on. The reality is, is that at some level, cautious, I'll, I'll say it like this, cautious because there are some dangerous things that have come out of the Pentecostal movement. If you are in this church and you've been a part of a Pentecostal church, you probably have either experienced hurt or known people that have been hurt because of the man-centered teachings and the legalistic perspectives. I, I don't know all of your stories, but I, I believe that that's probably the case. Charismatic, because we need to pull away from the cessationists that say that God is no longer working or that he's not empowering people through the Holy Spirit or that miraculous things don't happen. Because here's the danger in that. I mean, if, the, if that's the case, if God has ceased working and ceased empowering people, that means all of the work of the kingdom rests on me and on you. That means that I got to grow the church, that you have to go and, and, and save people, that you have to do the work that eternally changes people. How many of us feel equipped for that? Can you do anything on your own that's eternally significant, that changes someone forever? Heck, most of us can't even hardly think about planning what's going to happen next year. Now, some of you real strong planners may be planned out a year and a half. My wife. But the reality is, <laughs> you know who I'm talking about. The reality is, is that the unfortunate reality is, is that this is the camp that I grew up in and, and all of it rested on me. And so as my wits and my thoughts and my perspectives and my, my plans. And it denied the power of the spirit and the power and work of God to do his mission. Cautious, cautious charismatics because we want to draw back from both sides and say that we are going to long for and desire God to do his work to accomplish the mission he's called us to, the mission of redemption and restoration. And we're going to ask, I mean, here's another perspective. Here's another problem. What do I do with all the stories? I mean, things that I have seen happen if God is not empowering His people through the Holy Spirit to understand languages that they didn't understand. I, a missionary in China, I heard her. I heard her. She, she came to me. I know her personally. I trust this story. She was sharing the gospel with a Chinese woman, heard someone speaking in English so that she knew that this girl and her needed to leave because the girl had become a believer. They were talking about baptism. They left another way and Chinese police officers came in and she found out later they were Chinese police officers that were speaking in Chinese, but she heard them and understood them in English. What do you do with that story? Is she making it up? Is God not big enough to work past that? What do you do with, with a, a prayer? Every time I go on mission across overseas, I pray, God, give me the ability to speak in a language that they understand so that they can hear your word. It's never happened supernaturally, but does, does, does that take away from the fact that he orchestrated events in every case, in every case he orchestrated events that I had an interpreter that not only knew the gospel but believed it so desperately that they also wanted others to hear. And so I could speak trusting the words that were said by the translator to the people and his word was proclaimed. 
Does that take away from his power to work through his people? Absolutely not. But what do I do if I say that he doesn't work anymore? What do I do with the story of the Chinese woman who had us pray for her husband because he was dying? Not her husband, her father. He was dying and she was going to a village to see him, scared to death that he was going to die before she could get there and share the gospel with him. Please pray that he'll live long enough to hear the gospel. She gets there and they tell him, tell her he is dead. She goes and puts her hands on his dead body and prays for him and comes back to life. What do I do with that story if God is not at work and not using supernatural means to do those things? You see, none of those stories deny Scripture at all, do they? In fact, there's instances of Scripture where exact things like that happen. So to deny that power means that I have to deny that God is working and I have to establish a doctrine or a theology that's outside of Scripture. Or if I'm going to lean so much on the experience that if I don't, if I don't speak in tongues or if I... If, if I I'm going to become some uncontrollable, uh, out of my senses, disorderly person in, in, in worship, and it's going to cause confusion. That, that's, I'm going to have to draw myself away from the teaching of Scripture. Cautious charismatics. And why would I want you to be a charismatic? Why would I want you to be a cautious charismatic? 1 Peter 4, 7 through 10. You've heard, you've heard some of the stories, but let me just give you the Scripture now. 1 Peter 4, 7 through 10, the end of all things is at hand. If you've been with, us, been with me long, you know that this is one of my favorite passages. 1 Peter, I love that, that, that letter. The end of all things is at hand. He believes he's living in the end times. He believes that at any moment Jesus could come back. He says, therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. And for those of you that were here last week, remember the self-discipline. The end of all things is at hand. Church discipline right here. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as God's stewards or good stewards of God's varied grace. Peter, living as if Jesus could return at any moment, tells people to live and act and serve. In fact, if you were to read the rest of the context, he says to do it in a way as if you trust that God is empowering you to do it. Use your gifts. 1 John 4, 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Do not believe every spirit. You know what, you know what that spirit means that? It means spirit, but test the spirits to see what they are, whether they are from God or for, for many false prophets have gone into the world. The idea is, is that a prophet is a person that speaks for some supernatural force. And some, some theologians, some, some guys want to say that this spirit is the teaching. But I think the, the, the cleanest reading of that is that the spirit is the impetus or the, the motivation behind the false prophet speaking. And the reality is there are evil spirits out there. Read, about, read, read the New Testament. It's true. There is an enemy and he wants to deceive us and he will speak and whisper in people's ears that they will 
just, just weave false messages and they will bring false teachings. John wants his people to understand, to test the spirits. Ephesians 5, 18, and do not get drunk with wine. For that's debauchery. That's why we teach don't no drunkenness. It's okay if you want to consume some alcohol, but no drunkenness. That's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Here is a command to be influenced by the Spirit. The word that's, that we read filled is influenced. So here we are by Paul, a very doctrinally, theologically sound guy, telling us to be filled with the Spirit, be influenced by the Spirit, live your life under His influence, under His leading, under His inspiration, under His teaching, under His leading. Galatians 5.25, again, if we live by the Spirit, and if you're a believer today, that's referring to you. You are alive by the Spirit. The Spirit of God has made you alive. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Over and over and over, the New Testament teachings bring us to this place where we're called to act in accordance with the leading of the Spirit. And not one of them, not one of them come with a caveat that says, until all the apostles are gone. Not one of them say that, oh, there's going to be a time constraint on this. Let's get this done before John dies, because he's going to be the last one. None of them come with a time constraint that says, Hey, once the Bible is assembled, we don't need this anymore. None of them. Over and over and over, the sense is that this is the normal Christian walk. The normal expectations for Christians to live. The closest we come to finding that there is some temporary span for or temporary time for spiritual gifts is Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians. Paul's writing to the church at Corinth because they were jacked up. Just plain and simple, they were messed up. They were, he called them brothers, they, but, but they were rolling around. I mean, when we talked about them last week, they were impressed because and bragging because they had a guy that was sleeping with his dad's wife. They, that, that's, that, that was what they had to brag about. I'm just saying that's, that's hey, that's a messed up church. But not only, that's not the only thing they had wrong. They had all kinds of things wrong. In fact, they had begun to use the spiritual gifts that they had received to gain notoriety for themselves. In fact, what they were doing was that they'd come together and every one of them that had some word to share or had some tongue to speak, they'd all try to take their turn and it became very chaotic. And so when Paul sits down to write his letter to the Corinthians, he comes to chapter 12 and he begins to teach on spiritual gifts, but not just to give them instruction as many of us think, but a teaching of rebuke because they had begun to use them in such wrong manner with wrong motive. So he begins to teach them and he tells them about how the gifts, he gives them kind of a list, not an exhaustive list, but he gives them a list of some of the gifts that they could have received. He teaches them about orderly worship. He teaches them about motives and the reasons they should do it. And he kind of goes into 13 talking about the motive of using your spiritual gifts should be love. And then he comes to the end of 13 and he begins to say, okay, well, love doesn't end. In fact, he says this in verse 13 or chapter 13, verse 8. Love never ends. 
As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And he writes those words, and he's, he's just giving them this whole explanation. Here's your gifts. Here's how you use your gifts. Here's how your gifts work together in line with one another. Now you're supposed to use them in love, and love never ends. You guys know that verse, and love never fails. We love that. We love the idea of that. God's love will never leave us empty, never leave us wanting. It's always going to see, succeed in His purpose. And this is what He's calling us to. Love never ends. But prophecies will end. Tongues will end. Word of knowledge will end. These things will come to an end. So we recognize they're temporary. But what's the time limit? What's the, what, what makes them temporary? What changes the view? What, 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 what happens that changes the need for prophecy, tongues, and words of knowledge? The perfect comes. Well, what's the perfect? Well, what is the perfect? That's, that's a good question. And, I mean, isn't that what tells us, okay, it's going to end when the perfect comes? Does, does it look like, from what you see here, does it, does it look like it could be that when the Bible is assembled, you can quit speaking in tongues and quit prophesying and quit giving one another words of knowledge? Could that be what he's referring to? That's what a lot of people say. But let me ask you a question just based on what you know. We teach that the Bible is inerrant and infallible. But does it seem like we're handling it with perfect knowledge and perfect understanding? No, we're not. That's why there's two camps when it comes to, to tongues. That's why we're having to have a distinctive series because we're trying to understand and teach with, our, with, with the best understanding what the teaching of the Bible is. But the reality is, as smart as Spurgeon was, and as much as I loved his preaching and, and will read his sermons, he was a man. As great as, as any commentator you can think of, as great as Luther for, for being used by God to, 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 uh, to propel us into the Reformation, as much as we might appreciate him for that, it was God that did that work in him. As much as Calvin is to me, I read his commentary on every passage. But you know what? He's just a man. And the reality is, is that his views often differ from other views from people like Luther and others that were his contemporaries. I don't think it's when the, the, the perfect comes in. And I don't think when the apostles died is when the perfect comes because that doesn't sound perfect at all. They died. Is that the perfect arriving? You know, I think what the perfect coming and the perfect being here is, is when Jesus returns and the consummation of his work of redemption is done. When Jesus shows up, his elect are brought to him and judgment is cast upon the world. That's when the perfect comes. You will receive a glorified body and you will no longer need prophecy because you will hear and see with your own eyes. You will no longer need tongues because the cultural barriers we face today will be gone. We will be standing in the presence of our Savior. And those gifts will no longer be necessary when Jesus shows up. When Jesus shows up and comes in and with that trumpet sound, evangelization ends. There's no, no more need. It's going to be about worship then. 
It's going to be about us gathered. Certainly there's going to be teaching. Certainly there's going to be a need for gaining knowledge still, but not knowledge in the sense that Paul's talking about to the Corinthians. You see, I'm not going to need someone else in the church to walk up to me and tell me, and this happened to me since we've been at Cowden. And at first, as soon as I heard this person say these words, it weirded me out a little bit because this is not my, this is not my school. You know, this is not where I grew up. She came up to me. She's not a member of the church. Only been to the church once. She comes up to me and she says, I have a word of knowledge for you. And I was like, well, what's that? What's about to happen? I didn't know what to expect. And she said, as you were preaching, God spoke to me and said, hmm. Persevere. Your work is bearing fruit. <clears throat> now, it's emotional because when I first heard what she was going to say, when she, well, when, when she first said, I got a word of knowledge for you, I just, I'm telling you, I was nervous. I was like, what am I going to do with this? How am I going to handle it? She had no idea that that morning as I sat and prepared for the, for the message and just was praying through things, I was struggling, feeling feeling the weight, feeling the responsibility, not thinking that what I was doing was making a difference and thinking about running the other direction because that's the easy thing to do. She had no idea. I'm not going to need her to walk up to me and say that when Jesus comes back because I'm going to be looking at him with my own eyes, sitting at his feet when I, when I long for him, knowing that the work that's been done in his name has not been done in vain. Those are no longer going to be necessary when Jesus comes back. And that's when the perfect will be here. When the consummation of the new creation is unfolded when Jesus returns. And until that day, until that day, what do we do? What do we do, especially for those of us that are growing up in this camp that says it's ceased, that don't even think those things because they're weird and they make us nervous and a little scared inside? The first experience I had with tongues was a guy, and I'm not even sure it was biblical. I don't know what, didn't know what to do with it at the time, but it weirded me out and made me nervous about tongues ever again because I was standing on a parking lot. It was two in the morning. And he, he wanted to pray. He wanted me to pray for him and some things. And he says, well, I want to pray for you. And in the midst of his prayer, he goes into these, to this, these words that didn't sound like words. I don't know what he was saying, but it weirded me out. It freaked me out. You see, for us, for these people, for those of us that are in this camp, what do we do now? What do we do with all we've been taught, with all we've learned? It's ceased. It's no longer existing when we recognize that the one argument in Scripture, this is the only one you can look for yourself, I would encourage you to, this is the only one that demonstrates spiritual gifts were ever to be a temporary thing. And I'm telling you, it's not the Bible or the death of the prophets or the apostles. It is the return of Jesus. What do you do with that? Well, the very next verse that Paul gives us becomes very important. He says in for, for, I'm sorry, First Corinthians 14, 1 through 3, pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts, 
especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in tongues speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consideration. What do we do with this? Whether you're a continuationist and have been all your life and believe in, in the working and, and, and uh, empowerment of the Spirit, or whether you're a cessationist, come to this place where you recognize that Paul is calling us to this, to long for, to long for, to desire the spiritual gifts. But as many of us have been taught in our life that maybe tongues isn't the best one. But that we might be given God's word to proclaim out loud that others may hear it and be converted by it. To be challenged and grown by it. It, it, it. You consider again the vision of our church to worship and lead others to worship. To come to a place where you long for and listen for God. That you mo may proclaim that as you walk in worship, walk in the spirit, that you're able to proclaim for him his word. And that others are led to worship. What a beautiful sentiment. No longer do we have to carry the responsibility. No longer do we have to, to carry the weight. It's not just ours. Certainly we must persevere. Certainly we must walk the walk. Certainly we must push ahead. But we are called to lean on and walk in the power of the Spirit. To earnestly desire. And I, I'm going to tell you, I, an earnest desire is not like waking up on Saturday morning and thinking, man, I wish I could have just slept an hour longer. I woke up too early. Earnest desire. It's like David, my soul pants for you like a deer. Earnest desire. A, a desire that's so great that you'd go to great lengths for it. That you feel empty without it. Earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Earnestly desire the spiritual gifts for the very purpose that they were intended. You see, the, the whole problem with the cessationist and continuationist view is that it becomes so man-centered. But what do we hear from 1 Corinthians 14? And, and even in 1 Corinthians 13, you can, you can understand it, you can see it in 1 Corinthians 12. The teaching is there. The purpose of the spiritual gifts are not so that you can gain notoriety, not so that people can look at you and say, oh, what a holy person, not so that you can be a person that has control and has understanding of all that you know and do and has an answer for everything. The purpose of spiritual gifts is for the building and edification of the church to bring glory, great glory to the God who created and saved us. Why else would Paul differentiate between tongues and say prophecies better? Oh, it's great to speak in tongues and, and, and speak to God and, and to proclaim those mysteries. It's great for, for, for you but long for prophecy because it's farther reaching. Because the purpose of the spiritual gifts are for the church. It's for the people of God. Even those that have not realized they're His yet. And so we proceed in this way. With earnest desire for the well-being of the church. Long to be gifted and empowered by God. Desire the gifts so that God's work is done. Walk 
in love and not fear. Love never ends. And the truth is, John talks about this in his letter. Love, perfect love casts out fear. I feel weird when somebody comes up to me and tells me that they're about to give me a word of knowledge. It kind of makes me scary. But on the other side, it kind of scares me to ask God to do things with me that what if he doesn't follow through and I look like a fool? Here's a good, good example. I think it's a good example. You, you be the judge. I was sitting and talking with a guy uh, about all the stuff that's happened as we've prepared to buy this building. And he told me, when you stood in front of the church and said you were going to ask $300,000 for a building that they're asking four hundred fifty, dollars so I was like, that guy's lost it. I'm just saying I was praying all the way through this. Just let you know that. Praying all the way through it, felt confident. As soon as I walked on the property, felt like we needed to do it. Then he says, and then you say we're going to raise enough money to get in here thought you were no i couldn't believe it no way church our size raising that much money no way he's like and i know we didn't reach our goal but golly to imagine that we've raised more than enough money to pay a down payment and then get to do some of the work we hope to do that's he it shocked me and then you're walking around telling people you're gonna get two thousand dollars at a garage sale that i couldn't believe we would get 500 at I was like, hey, buddy, you're a naysayer. I was like, I'm glad you didn't say that stuff out loud. Now, the truth is, is that I, I, I'm not claiming some supernatural power. I, I don't know how it works, but I was confident God was going to make a way for us to do this. And I was confident I had to lead in that. And so at times, you might have got tired of hearing me talk about it. You might have got tired about, you know, and I don't know. October holds for us as we actually take hold of this building and begin using it. I don't know what it holds. It may be the end of the church. Oh, that's, that's scary, Seth. Why would you say something like that, Seth? I'm just saying God can do with us whatever He wants. Whatever He wants. But I don't believe that's what He has for us. You see, because as we strive to proclaim his gospel and lead people to worship him, I think, I believe that this is just a tool he is providing for us to use for his great name. I really believe that's what he wants. And I believe that's why he worked it out. And every little thing, mold, comes up. There's no mold in the building. Imagine that. Every little thing, as we were beginning the process of looking at the building, Amy is told by some friends, hey, there's a building for sale. I go and, and I come to the church and I talk about the building. And then we put a contract on the building. Amy has a friend come to her and say, there's a, there's a building for sale. Both cases, this building. I, I don't want you to think that I'm reading tea leaves, but I'm, I'm trying to say I, I, I believe. I believe that God is at work. What do I do with that from a cessationist point of view if the Holy Spirit isn't moving and empowering His people? Sure felt like my idea. No, it didn't. I wouldn't have been so bold about it with you guys if it had. I want you to earnestly desire for the good of the church and I want you to walk in love. 
not fear. Don't be afraid. I love, I love the perspective of these guys because as they tell their people to long for the gifts and to walk in the Spirit and to test the spirits, they're not out there trying to micromanage it. They're just saying, look for it and test it. Don't be afraid of it. If you had bad experiences when you were growing up because some people were taking it and abusing it, Don't let people's abuse of the spiritual gifts make you afraid of the gifting of the Spirit. Don't let people define how you're going to respond to God. Walk in love, not fear. And then I'm going to ask you and encourage you to be cautiously charismatic. One last passage, 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 21. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. And again, just so you know, there's no time frame on this. Paul isn't writing this to the Thessalonians and saying, oh, by the way, this first generation, do not quench the Spirit. The second generation, you won't need to because the Spirit's going to quit working. That's not what he says, is it? He says, do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Do not quench the Spirit. When you sense God leading and encouraging you to do something, do it. Walk in it. Long for it. Ask for it. Act on it. Do not despise prophecies. Do not go out and and, and hear God speaking and then say, that wasn't God. But test everything. This is the second time you've heard someone tell us through Scripture to test it. How do we test it? What do we test it against? In John, he says, test it against what they say about Jesus. If they claim that Jesus is Lord, that he is God in flesh, then, then it's a good spirit. You can listen to that one. If it's, if it's a spirit that comes or a prophecy that comes that, that denies the Christ, ignore it. Paul, as he's writing to the Thessalonians, as he comes to them, test everything. He doesn't give them a, a broad spectrum or an exact knowledge or an exact uh, measuring stick to, to, to test it. But test it against the Scripture. God's, got, God's not going to show up in your life and tell you husbands to divorce your wives. How do we know? Because the Scripture teaches us that God hates divorce. It is never God's will that we divorce. In fact, even, even in the places that, that could be demonstrated to say that there is allowance for divorce, when Jesus is challenged on it, he pushes back all the way to Genesis. And he demonstrates that divorce was never God's plan or intention, and it's never his desire. His desire is always reconciliation. Read it. You can read about it in Matthew and in Luke. When Paul talks about divorce, it's only because the divorce is between an unbeliever and a believer. And he allows divorce for for desertion. If the unbeliever wants to stay married, then the believer is bound to it. God's not going to show up in your life and tell you divorce your spouse. That's a bad spirit. That's a false teaching. God's not going to show up and, and say that Jesus isn't Christ. That's a bad teaching. And we know it and we can demonstrate it and we can see it in light of Scripture. So test everything. Hold on to what is good. Here's the thing. Let me just just encourage you with this and we'll finish up. I, I, I know. I know there's people in this room that have seen 
this hurt people and be used and abused. And I know that there's people sitting in this room that all their life they've been told that, that things like this are of the devil. In fact, that's when I was little. I don't know that that was what they intended to teach me, but that's what I gathered was that if somebody spoke in tongues, they were demonic. Just the truth. I, I know that there's two camps of people. And I know that sitting in this room, there is a people that desperately need to desire, to earnestly desire the gifts. To walk cautiously, charismatic, leaning on the scripture, willing to walk and proclaim and use and ser- use gifts and serve and, and gather and, and demonstrate hospitality and, and, and teach and pro- prophesy and all of this needs to happen. And it's not my job to make it happen. Every one of these letters, every one of these words were written to the people of the church. So it's you. Earnestly desire the gifts. Do not quench the spirit. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your grace. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you came and saved us. I thank you. I thank you that it's not on us. I thank you that the weight and and the power to get the job done comes from you. I thank you that your spirit lives in us and leads us. God, I do pray that you would teach us and help us to learn to walk in him. I pray, God, that you would strengthen us for it, that you would encourage us for it, God, that you would help us to, to move out of fear and to walk in love. God, I pray that you would strengthen us and encourage us and help us. God, I pray that, that now as we, as we close out and we worship, God, that we will be moved by your spirit for your greatness and that we would see the bigness and the majesty of who you are, that we would understand your power and that that, that power is in us and alive in us. God, I thank you for your work. Pray that through your spirit you would work now in us. And then God, help us to stand up that it might flow through us, that we might be a light in the, in the circles that we run, in the darkness around us, God. That we might be examples of your son, that we might be prophets for your spirit, that we might be proclaimers of your truth, that we might be your hands and your feet, and that we might be servants and 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 of people who are used to radically shape and mold and convert and change the perspectives of the people in Springfield, that they would recognize you and you alone as God. We thank you and love you. It's all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.